I'm going to read um, the Bible passage uh, for us before we, we look at it. Uh, it's from Romans 12. So if you have a Bible, uh, flick to Romans 12. We're going to read from verse 3 to the end of the chapter. So verse 21 is the end of the chapter. So Romans 12, uh, verse 3 uh, to 21. I'll, I'll read for us. I'll pray that we would hear God to uh, speak to us clearly this afternoon. And then we'll, um, we'll take a look at this passage together. So let me read Romans 12, verse for by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment, in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, It is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Why don't we pray that we um, would understand what God would have to say to us. Loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, the book of Romans um, that explains to us just what you have done for us in Christ Jesus how you have brought us into a relationship with you. As we consider what it means to live as followers of Jesus this afternoon, I pray that as we're confronted by the the myriad of of things that we are to do, that we would not um, just feel guilty for for doing some well, but others poorly, uh, but that you would help us to understand that the key characteristic, uh, the key motivating factor, uh, that is to manifest ourselves in lives of worship to you. And so, uh, though we may be distracted, um, though we may feel tired, I pray for, for but a moment that you would give us uh, energy and strength that we may listen to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So um, the other day I was having a breakfast with a friend. He'd been married for about six months, so we're just catching up. Hadn't seen him since then. And just trying to get a bit of an idea what kind of married life was like for him. And he, uh, he was kind of talking about a few of the differences, the good and the bad. 
Uh, but he said, you know, he didn't expect one thing. And, and this one thing happened to be how much kind of input his wife would be able to have in his life. You know, he thought, I'd, have, I'd be able to, like, run my single life. And then, you know, my wife started, like, offering her opinion about matters. And I was like, what's happening here? He, he is, he is. He earns lots of money, so that kind of thing makes up for it. I don't know. Um, but I, I have a feeling, though. I have a feeling, um, just like my friends, sometimes um, when it comes to our relationship with God, uh, we can tend to go to wonder, why, why is God speaking about this area of my life? It's like, I'm happy doing my thing. Why, God, why do you have input here? And so in, in, in last week's sermon in Romans 12, the first two verses, uh, we were reminded that in response to God's mercy, uh, God essentially had claim or laid claim to all of our lives. Everything we did in response to Him was a response to this new relationship that we had because of who Jesus was. He talked essentially about our whole lives, but he wasn't very specific. This week, he kind of really drills into the, the nitty-gritty of our lives. And Paul essentially breaks down uh, your life into three main areas. He, he talks about your, your interaction uh, in, the, in the church. He talks about what it li- looks like to live in a, in a community of people. And then ultimately, he talks about how you are to respond uh, to enemies. He talks about our whole lives, essentially. And he wants us to recognize one key truth. Uh, The key truth is that we are to let gospel humility transform how we interact with the world. Let me say that again. You are to let gospel humility transform how you interact with the world. In all these areas, a humility founded in our relationship with Jesus is to start to transform, shape and affect um, what we do in this world. So we're going to look at these three areas today and think a bit about what it looks like to live as those who follow Jesus. Uh, So if you're following along in your bulletins, uh, the three main areas are there, church, community, and enemies. We're going to look at the first one, church in verses 3 to 8. In these verses, Paul talks about what it looks like to be part of a church body, um, a church like this one. But before talking about what you're supposed to do in such a place, he talks about the governing mindset that you're supposed to have. The mindset that is to fuel your actions, to shape the way that you approach what and how you do things. And the mindset is very simple. It's a mindset of humility. If you have your Bibles, open there, verse, um, verse 3, sorry. Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment. Uh, Paul wants you to kind of have this mindset um, as you go about your daily lives a mindset of sober judgment. It's to see yourself correctly, not to have a self-inflated vision of who you think you are or who you would like to be, but to think of yourself realistically. Okay, well, what does that mean? Well, what's the yardstick by which we measure ourselves? It's there for us, end of verse 3. In accordance with the faith God has distributed each of you. That's how you're supposed to see yourself. That's how Paul thinks you should be looking at yourself. What does that mean, though? Like, God has distributed faith to people. Um, Two predominant kind of uh, interpretations obviously lend themselves here. Uh, One is that God distributes different amounts of faith to different people. Uh, You sort of, if you continue reading on in this passage, verse six to eight, Paul starts to talk about a number of gifts that people have within the church. And so some people think that the, the faith that people have been given, that we talk, see here, is actually the gifts that, that people have been given. So God has given some people lots of gifts or lots of faith, and, 
and so and others less. Um, and so some people do more, and so people do less, right? And so sober judgment is to think of yourself appropriately based on what you've been given. So I shouldn't think of myself as a master musician if God just hasn't given me that, you know, that gift, unfortunately. But, you know, if God has given me a certain gift, like teaching, then I should think of myself as a teacher, not like, oh, I'm not really a teacher. Um, God distributes different amounts of faith. So that's one way in which we could think about this passage. Another way is to think that God actually distributes the same amount of faith to each and every one of us. If you look at the whole passage, there's this constant focus, not on the differences, as in people doing different things, but the similarities we all have as those who are followers of Jesus. And so this measure of faith is actually the faith given by God to all who believe. It's a saving faith. And so sober judgment then is to think of yourselves no better, but no worse than anyone else in this room, to think of yourself all equally, all saved by the kindness and mercy of God. Uh, interesting, which one would you pick? Um, different, different options. I actually think the second reading is better, and I'll tell you why. I think the whole chapter is essentially talking about humility. So it would be odd at this point to kind of Paul to say, hey, some of you guys have better stuff than others. Um, but I think it makes sense really within the context of this part of the passage in verses 3 to 8. Let me explain. See, after Paul talking about this idea of humility that we're supposed to look at ourselves correctly, he then goes on to talk about what life is like within the church. So look there, verses 4 to 5. And he essentially uses the, the imagery of a human body, right? And he says, that is kind of like what it means to be part of a church. Different a body has different members that perform different functions. And so too within the church, different people have different roles, different responsibilities. That doesn't make them any less or worse than anyone else. Uh, there's a uniqueness to each and every one, but there's this uni unity that kind of comes together as people all work together to essentially make the body happen. But if you've ever been given a role at work, um, some roles tend to be better than other roles. And when that happens, pride is often not far behind. Um, when I was growing up at church, my, um, my role or, or my, my gifting um, was to stack chairs. That was, that was what I was supposed to do. And so I would get there before church and put out chairs. And I'd always like, look to other people like, oh, they're on stage. I wish I could be like them. You know, like, they're the people that really matter. I'm, I'm the, the chair stack guy. I'm totally dispensable. Like the preacher, we can't just get rid of him. Like we just sit there on our beautifully stacked chairs with not doing much if uh, the chair chucker guy was there and stuff like that. See, different roles so quickly lead to comparison. You know, think about it at work. If someone gets a good role and bad role, different gifts can so often lead to people feeling proud and indispensable. Actually lead us away from humility instead of towards humility. And so I think Paul, Paul's hope here is to counter any temptation that we might have to become people who are proud. It's to recognize that as we look at the church body, every position is essentially equal. Uh, every position that we occupy has nothing to do with your talent or nothing to do with your worth to God, but your function and your position is, is purely by God's kindness and mercy that He has given you any place in the body. So if God has given people different measures of faith, it would kind of lead people to go, wow, why do you get some, like, you know, 10 lots of faith and I only have one lot of faith, you know? Are, are you better than me? Are you worth more to God than me? See, Paul wants you to recognize that each of you belong to each other. That's what he says. 
A position of humility will quickly recognize that you need the person sitting next to you on the left as much as you need the person sitting next to you on the right. It would stop you dismissing people like, oh, that's a really important ministry, but this one, well, we can kind of do without. To see yourself with sober judgment then is to see yourselves all equally. To recognize that, you know, one body part is no better than the other body part and that each body part relies on every other body part. He really wants you to see that all of you are equal. And there's this joy there in the unity that we all share together. And so this is how we're supposed to look at ourselves. But he also wants you to recognize that just because everyone is equal in some sense, that God has given you essentially the the, the gifting to be part of the body to serve, that you're not all the same. There is a uniqueness to each and every one of us. God has made us differently. Paul tries to draw this out in verses 6 to 8 as he talks about different ways that people can be part of the church, be part of the body. Um, There's a whole lot of gifts there that I'm not going to try to explain right now because of time, but I do want us to to note two important things. Uh, The first is that this list that we see here is illustrative and not exhaustive. It's illustrative and not exhaustive. What I mean by this is it's examples essentially of what it means or what it looks like to serve or participate in a church. But it's not every possible way in which you can like actively participate in church. So if you're here right now and you're like, ooh, what, what kind of options are there? And you're like, oh, I can't do that, I can't do that, definitely can't do that. And you're like, at the end, and you're like, oh man, I'm stuffed, I, I can't do any of these. It's okay because it's illustrative, not exhaustive. Many other gifts are found in other chapters of the Bible Some overlap and some don't. But so often Paul is talking about a specific church context. He's not talking about every possible way in which you can participate in the church. Uh, But you have to notice that this list here is essentially not just an academic list. Here are some possible opportunities in which you might want to serve the church today. Uh, No, this list is very much a call to action. Uh, Do you notice how he doesn't just list things? He actually says, if you have... Uh, the gift of teaching, then teach. If you, if you lead, do it diligently. Uh, this list is a gift to action. He's calling each and every one of you uh, to exercise in some way, shape or form your function within the body. Regardless if you're the toenail on the pinky toe or you're the right hand with the thumb that has all this power, you're supposed to do something. So the, the natural question is, well, well, what am I supposed to do? What, what gift do I have? We start to wonder, well, even if my, my gift, so to speak, isn't on this list, well, what's my thing? What is your spiritual speciality, that, that niche in the church where you can participate and serve and essentially set you apart as being really helpful, right? There's no other, you know, big toenails in the body and that's my role. And what is that though? What is that? I believe God has blessed each and every one of you here with with certain gifts for the body. But I'm not too sure that asking, what's my thing, what gifts do I have, as the best way to then apply this passage. I think a better question that we might want to ask ourselves is, what situation has God placed you in where there are opportunities to serve? What specific needs do you see in the church that you can minister to? Why? Well, so often when we are preoccupied with thinking about what we've been gifted in, what we can do, that we so often fail to love and serve those that are right in front of us that need our help. You know, I don't have the gift of generosity, unfortunately, so I can't give to this need that we see in this church. I don't have gifts 
to work with kids. And so even though there is a great need out there, there are like 20 kids running around out there, well, I guess, you know, I can't help out. Because you know what? I have the gift of teaching. And even though there's no one to teach and, and no one to, to follow me, well, I'm just going to wait till people there are around. So we sit around waiting. We so often forget, we quickly forget, that God works through your weakness. It's ultimately not your talents or your skill that transform people, but God's Spirit working in you that is essentially the gift to the church. It's this mindset of humility that starts to shift us and govern us into how we approach life in the church. So often when we think, you know, what gift do I have? We're also thinking, what's, what's the most satisfying thing to me? Where I'll find myself feeling useful or where I find myself really enjoying life. Gospel humility helps us to recognize uh, that there is no one position better than the other. That ultimately that we are all part of one body. And that the aim of serving is not for personal satisfaction ultimately, but growth of the body in God's kingdom. And so I, I ask you this, this afternoon... What opportunities do you see around you that you can maybe participate in? Or what needs do you see? What needs do, do we talk about from the front that you're like, well, I, I can do that, I guess. I can do half. Humility will push us uh, to, to serve, maybe even though we don't think we're fully skilled, but to at least consider. So that's the, the one area in which Paul kind of encourages people to, to think about living differently. The second area is life in community. Once again, humility shapes how we interact in this area. He, he talks about essentially two main kind of um, actions, to be loving and to be zealous within the community. Look there at verse 9. Uh, he talks about loving. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. He's calling people to respond uh, to who God is, a God who is love. And to so to demonstrate in their own lives a, a real love without pretense, a love that is meaningful. I think love in verse 10 that shows devotion to one another, to honor one another above yourselves. You see that humility drives you in that direction. When you consider other better yourselves, it's only really from a position of humility. Otherwise, you're thinking, you know, like, I should probably encourage them, but like their thing isn't as good as my thing, so we should really shouldn't be talking about like, you know, my opportunity to celebrate. Other translations translate verse 10, the last part, as outdo one another in showing honor. Uh, we are reminded that love is not to be minimalistic. And so we're not only other-person-centric, other but persistent in care for other people. Verse 15, we're supposed to mourn with those who mourn and, and rejoice with those who rejoice. You're to celebrate other people's joys more than you would want to celebrate your own. You're supposed to be comforting others in their sadness more than you want to talk about how hard life is for you. Constantly trying to outdo one another and rejoicing and mourning, trying to love others. As a side note, I was reminded the other day that in order for us to be able to mourn and rejoice, you need to talk about what's worthy of mourning and rejoicing about. So often we go, how's your day, how's your day going? Oh, not bad. I, I do this all the time. Even though I might have had a really hard day or a really bad day, I don't really talk about it. Uh, this is a great opportunity to help others love us by just talking about what, life is, go what, ha what is happening in our lives. Uh, so, you know, chuck that one on the back of your head as you're, as you're kind of heading out to dinner tonight. 
But see, friends, gospel humility drives us outwards. And it just doesn't drive us to people that we like. You know, if I, if I hang out with Arn, I think he's a nice guy. I'm going to mourn and rejoice with him. We're going to like cry and weep and hug. And it's, it's going to be all good. Um, you know, we're going to try to do one another and that. But then I think verse 16 is the kicker. Humility pushes us to those that we would least want to hang out with, that we are most tempted to avoid. Love must be sincere, and I think this is sincere love, not just to the people we like, but to the people that we'd rather avoid. But Paul calls us not just to be loving, but to be zealous as well. I was uh, telling my congregation this morning that one of the most difficult things as I started as a pastor of that congregation was to understand exactly what my congregation was talking about. This was predominantly for the people that were of uni age. See, when I was in uni, we spoke in full sentences without using acronyms. Nowadays, when I talk to people, I've got no idea what they're saying, especially when they text me with emoticons. I'm like, what is, what is this? How do I interpret this? Anyway, so when we first started um, at, at Acts 11, um, some people would go, yeah, I, go, I didn't see a prayer meeting. And they go, yeah, I was two Siebes. I was like, what is that? Do you know? So, so it took me a while to figure out Siebes is actually the, the English, anglicized version of can't be bothered. So it's... it's it's like hyphenated CBB, can't be bothered. And then you try to say CBB in a word. So it's Siebes. Anyway, <laughs> so it's, this basic, it's basically this attitude that, you know, I don't have enough energy or, or desire to do something, right? So if you're like, oh, and goes, why don't we like go hang out? I'm like, oh, I'm Siebes, right? That's, that's kind of how you use it. Zealousness is essentially the opposite of being Siebes. Zealousness is to have passion and eagerness in every situation. See, look at verses 11 to 13. See, I think this is what zealousness looks like. See, in moments when, when your focus on God wavers and you just can't be bothered, it is, it is someone that is keeping spiritual fervor and serving the Lord. In, in moments when we experience the brokenness of this world and just, and just don't care anymore, Zealousness is to be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. In moments when the needs of others press in on you, verse 13, you are to share with the Lord's people who are in need. You are to practice hospitality. That's zeal. It's, it's kind of caring when you don't want to care anymore. And I want you to realize that all these actions, I, I think really for Paul, are grounded in gospel humility. Uh, we could talk about each of one of them, but I want to look at the last one in verse 13, the idea of hospitality. I mean, when I say that word, hospitality, what comes to your mind? What comes to your mind? Um, so often, when you talk about this word, it's, well, it's something to do with the idea of inviting people into your home, providing tea or coffee service, maybe even a meal. That's kind of hospitality, right? Then you're kind of thinking, well, what if I don't own a house? And if I did own a house, what if it's really not very safe for me to offer and cook them a meal because I just don't have the skills and it just might poison them instead, right? What, how do I be hospitable? I think the Old Testament is really helpful here. Uh, Israel, the nation of God, um, were called to show hospitality. And let me read from Leviticus 19, verse 33 and 34. This is the reason why. God speaks, When, when a foreigner resides among you in your land, do not mistreat them, uh, the foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native born. Love them as yourself. For you were foreigners in Egypt. 
See, the rationale for showing hospitality here is because Israel were outsiders, yet they were welcomed by God. God had rescued Israel from Egypt. He had called them to himself to be in relationship with him, not because they were special or worthy, but because of his good pleasure. And so if you actually look at the dictionary as to what hospitality is, one dictionary says it's the process where an outsider's status is changed from stranger to guest. An outsider's status is changed from stranger to guest. And so I think in this way, hospitality is less about food and drink, though that's pretty important. It's more about the change of status. You welcome a stranger And by loving them, getting to know them, asking good questions, they move from a stranger that you've never known to someone that you you would welcome as a friend. And so I think humility plays a crucial role in this, doesn't it? See, without gospel humility, everything that we we have, everything that we we own is is ours to distribute accordingly. You know, I like that person, so I'll give something to that person. I don't like that person, so you're definitely going to withhold from that person. As we start to realize, as we stand before God, that uh, we, we... gave God nothing before He came and sent His Son, Jesus. We were actually people that hated Him. And I was just thinking, like, sometimes there is kind of those sins where, where you'd confess to someone, where you confess to God. I think there are sometimes sins where I don't even want to accept to tell myself about because I'm so ashamed. And yet God moves towards us. Knowing how bad we are, He moves towards us. And he draws those who are outcasts and outsiders to be part of his family. We start to recognize that we, we, we have nothing before God and he chooses us. In the same way, we start to realize that this is supposed to fuel our desire uh, to, to, to move towards those on the outside, to bring them from, from, from strangers to guests. And so whoever you are here this afternoon, if you have a home, you can do hospitality, invite people in. Uh, but... Think less about providing uh, an amazing culinary experience, though that's, you know, that, that's kind of nice. I, I think it's so much more about getting to know people, asking good questions, taking interest in their lives, so they walk out of your house as someone that is known. But if you don't have a house, well, there are so many visitors here each week. Take time to find out about them. Sometimes it's really easy to have a conversation one week, but then, well, oh, I talked to that guy last week, oh, you know. Spend time getting to know people, inviting them into your life, into your social activities. Turn them from people who are outsiders and strangers into guests and friends. See, friends, whoever you are, you have the capacity to extend hospitality to others, fueled by a gospel humility. So we've talked about life in church, life in a a community. Why don't we lastly look briefly at life among enemies. Respond to enemies, verse 17 to 21. Paul recognizes that life in this world is is hard, and so there will be others who persecute you. But instead of of responding by taking a revenge in verse 19, or or, or responding with evil for evil in verse 17, believers are called to do what is right, to seek peace, verse 18. Why? Well, in verse 19, Paul reminds us, God is the ultimate judge, the executor of justice. And so we shouldn't be people who take his place. But he gives us another reason, doesn't he, in verses 20 to 21. You're to act kindly to your enemies. Feed them if they're hungry. Provide drink if they're thirsty. Because in doing this, you will heap burning coals on their heads. What a a nice kind of metaphor that is. What what does it mean to heap burning coals on someone? Well, 
I mean, there are a few options, but I think that the best one is, is this. Uh, some people think to heap uh, coals is to act really kindly to someone. To act so kindly to your enemy that they start to recognize that their actions really are shameful. That they have remorse in their actions because you're just so darn kind to them, even though they are mean to you. So kind that it leads them to turning back and recognizing who God is. And it leads them to conversion. I, I think this makes most sense of verse 21, where you're overcoming evil with good. Throwing coals is just another way of being really nice. The basis for this action of love and kindness to those uh, that would persecute you or those that would deal in evil is the humility of the gospel. The gospel reminds us that ultimately we stand before God as those who are equally to be judged. We are just as corrupt and guilty as the person next to us and we would act like them but for the grace of God. As you see yourself correctly, we turn outwards to others, not seeking revenge but to love them, hoping that our actions would turn them to forgiveness. See friends, whether it's the church, the community, or the way you respond to enemies, gospel humility is to shape how you do things. It's to shape how you think about your relationships. And I think as, as the, the ladies were reminded yesterday, the ultimate example of humility fueled by the gospel is Jesus Christ. Let me read from you uh, Philippians 2 verses 5 to 8. If you have a Bible, why don't you follow along? Philippians 2 verse 5 to 8. In your relationships with one another, had the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. See, friends, in Jesus, uh, we see the ultimate example of what humility is, what it, what it means to humble ourselves. But in Jesus and what He's done, we should be humble because we recognize that God has sent His only Son, Jesus, to die for our sins. Jesus laid aside His rightness. He was well within His right, wasn't He? To declare that we would come serve Him and worship Him, uh, the God of the heavens. Yet He laid that aside and took on the form of a human man. And the gospel writer Mark says, He did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life, his life as a ransom for many. And as Jesus does this, as He lays down His life and takes on the punishment of sin for God's people, we start to recognize that we were, we were called and accepted by God, not because that we had earned enough credit, but it was actually in spite of our good works. Nothing we do could essentially make us good enough before God. And yet God says to those who are strangers and aliens, you are now not only my friends, but my family. To those who are outsiders and outcasts, I've come in because I want to clothe you with the finest robes and give you the riches of heavens. See, friends, gospel humility is to recognize that we have abundant riches, yet we do not deserve any of this. And so we are to move with this humility towards and serve others. I mean, why do you serve at church? Why do you try to love your enemies? Why do you try to be zealous and keen and be hopeful? Paul wants you to recognize that humility grounded in the gospel is the primary mindset that should drive you outwards to others. 
in response to this passage, I think we should be picking just one area in our life. Church, friends, enemies, which area seems to be the most pressing to you? Obviously, God grows every one of us in each of these areas. But so often, God kind of presses in on one of these areas in your life at one point in time. You might be thinking of a difficult relationship you have right now. Um, those that may have offended you. Uh, you might have been coming along to BCC for a while, you know, just enjoying what it means to be part of a church. But now you're thinking about the next step. What does it look like to serve? Where is God challenging you to respond? In response to this passage, how is humility shaping the way? How's humility shaping the way? See, for some of us who've been wronged, the, the instinct is to think about retaliating like in a really Christian way. So we, we're like, I'm just going to not talk to them or I'm going to slowly distance myself from them. I won't shout at them or be angry because that would just be very unchristian. But if I just don't talk to them, that might be better because I just can't forgive them for what they've done. Maybe we, we can't love our enemy perfectly at this point. But maybe this passage tells us that we should be cultivating a posture of humility that we might ultimately get to a point of forgiving them. Maybe it might be to start to pray and ask God to help you see maybe how in other areas of your life, you're maybe a lot more like this person than you are not like this person. Maybe you're just as, as selfish and as uncaring to others as they have been to you, but you just can't see that. And so maybe creating a posture of humility might be to pray not only for them, but for yourself as well. See, friends, there, there are constant opportunities to respond, whether that's in church, uh, with our friends, to our enemies. The question is, where is God challenging you to respond this afternoon? Where is God challenging you to respond this afternoon? Why don't I pray right now that God would make it abundantly clear how we might respond and how humility might play a, a key role in us responding. Oh Lord Jesus, uh, we thank you so much for this passage. Uh, that is just so challenging because there are just so many things you call us to do. But we thank you that because of Jesus and what he's done, how he's not only set the example, uh, but that he has essentially drawn us into relationship with you, uh, has, has transformed our hearts, that we can be people. We can be people transformed by the gospel uh, to, to serve, uh, to love not only our enemies, but our brothers and sisters within the church. Help us to be people that do this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <laughs>